Senate majority will pass legislation. I will fight like hell for you every single day, like I've always done and always will. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. New York's COVID-19 vaccine mandate for healthcare workers is now in full swing, leaving some worried that hospitals might be left understaffed without those unvaccinated workers. But so far, it looks like hospitals and other healthcare facilities are making it work, and the state now has a plan if they can't. We're going to turn first today to Daryl Camp, who's been following this this week. Daryl. Thanks, Dan. So while hospitals seem to be coping with the state's vaccine mandate, some have already said they could delay elective procedures if it comes down to it and bring in the National Guard or workers from out of state. The Hochul administration has already said it has a plan in place to make that transition easier if it comes down to that. But hospitals are still keeping an eye on staffing because they can't predict what their intake will be like on any given day. Right here in the capital region, Albany Medical Center is giving workers a short grace period to get vaccinated before they take action. That's according to Albany Med CEO, Dr. Dennis McKenna. These employees have been noticed that they will be suspended without pay for seven days. And then if they do not get the vaccine, they would have to exit the organization. However, that doesn't apply to all unvaccinated workers, as Dr. McKenna did say that there are a few religious and medical exemptions for vaccines. So, Daryl, I did hear uh, on Thursday that Albany Med has closed some urgent cares to fill in that staffing in the emergency rooms, right? Two of them in Mechanicville and Gilderland, but it's sort of a chicken or egg scenario because, once again, emergent cares are there to divert from emergency rooms. So if those staff are at the emergency rooms, are we really balancing the workload? I guess we'll have to wait and see. That's a really good point, actually, because urgent cares are meant to replace these ERs because they're already overloaded. More so, of a supplement. In yeah, a sense. exactly. Yeah. So I guess we'll see if that happens more across the state. I don't know. You could argue right now that they could already use the National Guard workers and out-of-state workers to sort of supplement since we have to close urgent cares. Also a very good point. Thank you, Daryl. And it wouldn't be a week in New York without a little politics. New York City public advocate Jumani Williams said this week that he's forming an exploratory committee for a potential run for governor. And Attorney General Letitia James appeared to inch closer to her own run for governor. She spoke to business leaders in New York City Thursday, and here was one telling moment. Hope is the right segue to this next question. Uh, Are you running for governor? So it was governor? great. It was a wonderful breakfast. <laughs> I am, I'm so glad that all of you are here. It's a packed room. Um, it really is. I am focusing on my work, putting my head down, serving all of you as the Attorney General, and I must leave you now uh, to pursue that work. Thank you. God bless you. And we've also got an update on that fund the legislature passed this year with COVID relief for undocumented people. Let's talk about it with Masara Makati from the Times Union and Kate Lisa from Johnson Newspapers. Thank you both for being here. Thanks for having Thanks. us. Of course. Masara, I want to go to you first. You had a great story this week about the Excluded Workers Fund, which is, as I said, a COVID relief fund for undocumented people because they weren't eligible for other relief. Mm -hmm. So some immigrants are saying that there are barriers to this, that there are a lot of hurdles that make it not so open to a lot of people. Tell me about it. Yeah, so essentially there are a few different documents that the immigrants have to have to apply for the funds. Um, but the nature of a lot of the work that undocumented immigrants have and the way that they live their lives makes it more difficult for them to get those funds. For example, um, a lot of immigrants are cash employees, mm. right? They get paid with cash. 
Uh, but you have to have like a W-2 form or a pay stub or something to submit when you're applying for the funds to show that you lost out on a certain amount of money during the pandemic. When you're a cash worker, where are you going to get those W-2s from? Right. Where you are you going to get pay the pay stubs? stubs? Exactly. So undocumented immigrants will then have to go to their employer to ask them for some sort of a letter um, or documentation to say that they got paid X amount of money during this time period. Obviously, that can be a really scary thing to do. Um, there have been stories of undocumented immigrants who have gone to employers asking for those letters that end up getting fired. Mm. Um, one undocumented immigrant I spoke with, she said that there are so many people in her community who she knows where the bosses just refused to give them anything. Um, you know, the suspicion is that maybe it's just because they're getting away with not paying taxes on their employees and they don't want to have to do that, right? There's that. So that's like one barrier that a lot of undocumented immigrants have been facing in accessing the funds. The other one is providing proof of residence. Um, right. that's, that's a huge one. You have to show where you live. Now, we have green light now, which is, which is great for the undocumented immigrants because they can have that driver's license that shows where they live. But what if they don't have that driver's license? Or what if they just haven't gotten it yet? They're, they have their learner's permit. Or um, what if they're not even planning on getting a license because maybe they live in the city? So then they have to submit a utility bill. But maybe the utility bill isn't in their name because they have roommates. Maybe it's in their roommate's name. So the list goes on and on and on of ways that it can be really difficult for undocumented immigrants to show their proof of residence. Um, the final thing that's been really challenging is the funds are running out. That's and, what I was going to ask you about. So yeah. we don't even know, like if you're applying for it right now, you don't know if you're going to get the money. No. Um, as of last Friday, the Department of Labor put a uh, disclaimer on their website saying, you know, if you apply, your application will still be considered, but we can't guarantee that you're going to get any funds. When advocates initially um, advocated for the excluded workers fund, they asked for $3.5 million. They got $2.1 million. They asked for 3.5 because they knew that that was at least how much they needed for the community in New York State. Um, you know, but the applications have been open for, it started on August 1st, the applications opened on August 1st, so about two months now. But most of the applications were submitted the week that the DOL put up that disclaimer. So it was like the week prior to that right. Friday that most of the applications were submitted. Why? It's because it takes a lot of organizing yeah. to you know, figure out the support and the resources to help undocumented immigrants submit their applications for these funds. So it took a while for organizations, especially upstate, right, because they're not as concentrated as they are down in New York City, to, to you know, figure out what they were going to do and how they were going to process this whole thing and, yeah. and get the word out to the community and, and help them figure out, you know, proof of residence. Some people started looking at family court documents or using traffic violations to, to provide proof of residence. Um, I don't want to cut you off. I want to get to Kate before we oh. run out of time. But I'm really interested to see what lawmakers do about that in January when session starts or maybe before that. Yeah. Uh, speaking of next year, Kate, we already have some primary primary challengers maybe to the governor, Jimani Williams forming an exploratory committee, Tish James maybe jumping in. What's the temperature like right now? Rising, for sure. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's interesting because we're still more than a year out from the 2022 governor's election. Um, so this, it's really starting to get interesting, especially because we had some people um, like New York City public advocate, Jimani Williams, 
really um, open kind of, I, I guess it's unofficial kickoff to the yeah. primary, really. And, and then we had Governor Hochul kind of come back yesterday, uh, Thursday of this week, saying that, you know, she's, she's not going to comment on that kind of uh, thing about the race. She's not focusing on gossip with politics right now, right? So, I mean, like, yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, publicly, yes. Behind closed doors, I'm sure that's different. Absolutely. But we aren't getting the um, discourse yet, but it's, it'll be interesting to see uh, as he opens that committee and who else teases throwing their hat in the ring because that it will make a big difference um, with the New York, the, I guess, the, the upstate versus the downstate voters because... Um, Jumani Williams obviously has that stronghold as a, as a Brooklynite. Oh, yeah. um, Tis James, obviously Attorney General James, is from Brooklyn also, and they kind of are farther to the left a little bit than Governor Hochul has kind of self-described herself as a more moderate, just kind of centrist Democrat. So um, it will really be telling of what direction I think the Democratic Party might be going in the state. And in about 45 seconds, do you think that this is a repeat of 2018 where somebody jumps in the race and drives maybe Governor Hochul even further to the left, like how Cynthia Nixon basically forced Cuomo's hand on marijuana? Right. Um, that is totally possible because if she, since Governor Hochul is from upstate, right, I mean, now she has Lieutenant Governor Benjamin, who who is from Harlem, so she's she's got her upstate, downstate balance on for her ticket mm -hmm. but uh, i do think to appeal to those voters down there that 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 more far left it, it could push some of her politics far left as as the next year unfolds so we'll have to see what happens we'll see it's going to be really really interesting exciting yeah lisa from johnson newspapers masara makati from the times union thank you both so much thank, thank you so going back to COVID here, healthcare workers aren't alone in their vaccine mandate. The state is also requiring vaccines for state government workers who can also test weekly instead of getting the jab. And students at public colleges and universities in New York also have to be vaccinated, but there's no option for them to test out. That came to a head this week when SUNY started deregistering students who haven't been vaccinated. That's only about one to 2% of the student body on any given campus. So it's not expected to affect the SUNY system all that much. Instead, SUNY is trying to move past COVID and focus on growing the system and providing more opportunities for students. SUNY Chancellor Jim Malatris sat down with me this week to talk about that. And just a side note, we spoke before SUNY started deregistering students. SUNY Chancellor Jim Malatris, thank you so much for being here. It's nice to be with you. So it's been about a month since the school year started in SUNY, the first semester, I should mm -hmm. say, of the year. How's it going so far? It has to be a challenging year. It's the second year, or I guess third year, where COVID is affecting things. This is really our third year. Um, in many ways, it is a new enthusiasm and energy. I've been to about a dozen campuses th so far, and last year versus this year is like night and day. Last year was mm. a tough year for our students, and we can be honest about it, they survived last semester. We kept our campuses open, but it was really difficult. This year, completely different. Students are back, faculty are back, events are back, gatherings are back, people are back in classrooms in a more robust way. It's been a much better experience this year so far. Oh, that's good news. Yeah. But aside from that, what's your biggest challenge for SUNY right now? Is it the COVID stuff? Is it other stuff? You know, people, we're putting COVID sort of on the back burner now. We're managing it. We're doing the vaccination process that we have the mandatory vaccination process. We're testing, mm -hmm. we're doing all of those things. But what we're really trying to get back is to core academic mission, 
previous couple of years were really tough. People lost a lot of learning time, a lot of social time. How do you bring that back? While we're transforming our economy post-COVID, who can meet the needs of the post-COVID economy? That's higher education. But we have to do a better job of transforming. So in the middle of all of this, we now have a moment in time to really take the reins and say, how can we make higher education better to meet the new workforce demand? You know, with a vaccine mandate, have you had any staffing issues like how hospitals have had with a healthcare worker mandate? How has that affected the workforce? Well, we have public hospitals, which we run. We have three hospitals, and that has been a challenge. Our, we have had uh, staffing shortages. People are tired. People are leaving for higher paid jobs in other places. So we're doing everything that we can. We applaud Governor Hochul, by the way, for giving that, uh, that overtime flexibility and doing some of those things that allow us to retain our workforce. Overall, though, our staff has not uh, had many uh, challenges with the vaccine policy. We've mandated it, by the way, for our MC employees because we can. Right. Most people are getting vaccinated. Most of our students, we're at about 92% of our students are now vaccinated, even with the mandate coming due soon. So they want to turn the page on this, right? We're getting vaccinated because we want it to be over with. So we're not seeing those challenges here like you're seeing in other places. What happens down the line a few months from now when hopefully our COVID numbers are low enough that things go a little bit back to normal. How is that going to affect SUNY? Do you see any changes or will it be, I assume it'll be smooth sailing because all you got to really do is take off a mask and go to class, but you tell me. I think what we're doing now is going to be the thing that keeps us open and keep our classes open and robust. You never know what comes our way, Dan, right? We always have these curveballs. We thought last year it was going to be over. Yeah. And we thought this summer was going to be over and there's always a new emerging thing. But what you're finding is if you vaccinate everyone, it doesn't matter what variant comes your way because you're basically have minimized the virus. So I think SUNY is going to be on a path of prosperity. We're going to keep open. And now what we want to do is transform what we're doing to give students more experiences, more opportunities to be more successful in life. That's our main concern. That's our main objective, not COVID. So talk to me about that. What do you see as the vision for SUNY moving forward? How do you uh, strengthen it, I guess, and expand these opportunities for students? Here's the challenge we have. Enrollment in higher education nationwide is on the decline. Right. SUNY is not immune from that decline. For the past 10 years, our enrollment has been declining. It's been accelerated because of the pandemic, but I think we're stabilizing a little bit. All at the same time, where 70% of all new jobs being created in the United States of America need some post-secondary education. Now more than ever, you need some credential in higher education to meet the workforce demand. It's on us now to reach out to students and communities and individuals and communities who don't have the necessary credentialing and say, we're here for you. We're the largest system in the entire country. There's an option whether you wanna to go to a community college or an mm -hmm. educational opportunity center or get your PhD or medical degree. We have everything at a low cost at very high quality, but it's on us to reach into communities and show, here's our value for you because you'll be successful. That's the main challenge we have, is to demonstrate how important we really are in society. So I went to a SUNY school, SUNY Albany, and it seemed like a no-brainer for me just you know, based on cost alone. I was looking at private schools, no way I could have afforded them, so very thankful for SUNY. Why do you think we see that decline in enrollment over the last decade, considering that SUNY is uh, probably the best value that you're going to get in the state. It is the best value. And the honest truth is, I wouldn't be chancellor today without a SUNY education. Right. SUNY afforded me the ability to get my education, to go into government and public policy, to go into higher education. Without SUNY, I would not have had any of those opportunities because I couldn't afford going to a private school either. And that gave me the economic and social mobility that I needed. I think there's a couple of things at play. First, I think there are some cultural divides in our country still where people don't think a higher education is worth it. Yeah. That's for other people. That's not really going to teach us anything. That's not going to provide us core values or get us a job. There is that out there. And then there's intense competition where people, there's 
private training programs and other things, and they say, don't go to college, it's not worth it any longer. So you're facing these real divides or this community is being left behind. The biggest drop off in our enrollment are in underrepresented communities. Those communities mm. who have been most impacted by COVID, those communities have been most impacted by the economic transformation from the manufacturing economy to the information economy. They're just not hearing us. They're, we're not connecting with them. We're not providing them what they think are the opportunities. So part of our mission going forward is to go into those communities. Mm. What I love about SUNY, Governor Rockefeller built the campuses all across the state of New York. We yeah. have a SUNY campus everywhere across. But we often did not build those campuses in those underrepresented communities. Part of what my mission as chancellor is going to be is get our campuses to work better together, go into those communities, reach out to them directly and say, we're here for you. You don't have to come to us. We're going to you. And I think if we can make that connection, we'll turn the enrollment problem around. The, way, the enrollment problem is an equity problem, really. Absolutely. The way that you're talking about this really reminds me of the way that the, our new governor, Kathy Hochul, talks about her strategy statewide. How do you see Governor Kathy Hochul affecting SUNY, do you think that she'll be a champion for SUNY? Do you think that things will change, I guess, under her? I think so. She has been a big proponent and champion of SUNY. Often what a chancellor does is go around to many campuses. We try to elevate the status of the uh, campuses by doing events and other things. Governor Hochul was always there. Governor Hochul understands the system. She understands what we can do for workforce. By the way, one third of all of our workforce in New York State are SUNY graduates, one third, more than one third. That's a huge part, part of our workforce. Yeah. She understands that how we are the economic engine driving the workforce training. Second piece is she understands our students. There are many barriers to college, childcare, hunger, housing insecurity. She's been in the forefront of those issues, especially childcare. Childcare, absolutely. So she gets our student body, she gets our value. I think we're gonna have a much better approach with Governor Hochul leading the way because she really believes in public higher education. You know, looking ahead to next year, obviously it's months away, but do you think that SUNY needs more funding from the state in next year's budget to do all of this? Obviously you have a lot on your plate. I think we need more resources. I think that's a really important thing for us. If we want to have more academic opportunities, we need to hire more faculty. Yeah. I think if you look at what we're doing with the educational opportunity program, which the legislature and the governor did give us an infusion like we've never had before, 20% increase in EOP. Mm -hmm. That's a foundational thing to give the supports we need for underrepresented students to be successful in college. That money is going to go a long way, but we still have 14,000 applicants for 8,000 slots. We should serve every one of those students who are eligible, not just the students that we have funding for. So I think if you can invest in SUNY, we'll invest in the communities, we'll we'll determine, we'll show return on a a value, we'll do all of those things. But yes, I think resources are tremendously important for us. All right, I guess we'll look at it next year and see what the governor and the lawmakers do, but we'll leave it there. SUNY Chancellor Jim Malatris, thank you so much. Thank you. So we heard there that SUNY wants more funding to grow its presence. And if there's one group that agrees with that, it's UUP, the union that represents SUNY workers. A lot of people don't know it, but SUNY actually operates a handful of hospitals around the state. So the vaccine mandate for healthcare workers applies to them too. And while there were concerns that would cause havoc at those hospitals, it doesn't look like that's going to happen. But UUP says those hospitals were understaffed and underfunded long before the pandemic. I spoke this week with Fred Kowal, the union's president. Fred, thank you so much for being here as always. I appreciate it. Great to be here, Dan. Thank you. Of course. So let's jump right into the vaccine mandate for healthcare workers. Some people may be thinking, why does this matter for SUNY? And SUNY actually operates a few hospitals in the state. 
So I want to start there. Tell me how this is going in terms of the vaccine mandate at those facilities for the, those healthcare workers. How does it look? Are you going, going to see a large, I guess, uh, gap of workers at those hospitals? You know, what I can tell you thus far is I think the situation is not as bad as it was feared. Uh, the majority of the people who work at SUNY's hospitals at Stony Brook, downstate in Brooklyn, upstate in Syracuse, the majority of those workers are UUP members. And we're talking about a lot of the, obviously the physicians, the nurse practitioners, uh, uh, and uh, the therapists, uh, respiratory therapists, crucial during COVID. Uh, it is, first of all, our members are vaccinated at over 90% at the three hospitals. And so since they form the majority of the employees at the hospitals, I think the hospitals are going to be okay. Having said that, there are long-term staffing issues at the SUNY hospitals going back 10 years because of underfunding in the Cuomo administration. That's what we're seeing. Those, those terrible circumstances are coming home to roost in the middle of a pandemic. But I think the reality for our members at the hospitals, they did a really good job about getting themselves vaccinated and committing themselves to the health and well-being of the community and the patients they serve. So our members are doing a good job with that. But there are several hundred who are still not vaccinated who will face disciplinary charges but we've done everything to ensure their rights are protected. Yeah, so what happens to those workers in terms of disciplinary charges? Are we talking about those workers um, having to leave their jobs or I guess being fired because they're not vaccinated? I know the different unions around the state were trying to work with the administration on some sort of solution. Yes, we were able to work with the administration and come to an agreement whereby what's called Article 19 in our contract, all of the due process protections there are maintained. So an individual is put on suspension uh, as of yesterday if they were not vaccinated. They can use vacation time or other accumulated leave so that they can get some pay because they're on leave without pay, the suspended without pay. But they're also eligible for their health insurance benefits. So they're protected in that way. And then there is a normal disciplinary process, a hearing and so forth, so that, you know, the the clarity about what they are being disciplined for, in this case, not being vaccinated. All the while, they can certainly become vaccinated and be back at their workstations. And that's what we're encouraging them to do and have been, have been doing consistently over the last few months. When you talk about disciplinary action, are we talking about any other options other than termination here for these workers? Is there any kind of loophole that they can use to avoid being fired besides using their paid time off for that, uh, that gap that they have where they can't work but haven't been vaccinated? Well, we do know that there is a medical exception to the vaccine. It's a, it depends on how the state and the institutions want to interpret that. And there is also uncertainty right now about the religious objection. That pretty much rests on what the federal court decision coming out of Utica will be over the next couple of weeks. But those are two categories where potentially individuals could avoid getting vaccinated while also avoid eventually being terminated. The fact of the matter is, in these circumstances, given it was a Department of Health order, individuals may well be terminated if they are not vaccinated and they don't meet those two uh, possible exemptions. So you did mention some staffing issues that aren't related to this vaccine mandate, and I want to dig into that a little bit because if you don't have staff at a hospital to care for people, that's obviously a problem. Talk to me about how this has happened. Has it just been a, a case of underfunding by the state? 
Is it enrollment in terms of um, the, the students that learn at these hospitals? Why are these facilities so understaffed? Well, the, the circumstance really develops, the, the problem develops about 10 years ago when the Cuomo administration began to aggressively try to reduce the state funding to state hospitals that are ultimately the responsibility of the governor. And he aggressively tried to remove what was then called a subsidy. I prefer to call it mission funding. This, this funding is used to treat patients while also educating future healthcare uh, professionals because these are teaching hospitals. Eventually, two years ago, the governor was successful in zeroing out what at one point was a $120 million worth of state funding for the hospitals. What that has translated to is staffing shortages across the board at all three hospitals. And yet, apparently, Governor Cuomo thought that downstate was so important, he made it a COVID-only hospital during the height of the pandemic in New York City. Unfortunately, the funding was not there to support downstate or the other hospitals. Let's remember, the pandemic continues. These hospitals take all patients, treat all patients, and are remarkably successful in doing so. But they are short-staffed. They can't compete with the private hospitals. And in that circumstance, the answer is simple. We need state funding. I am hopeful that the Hochul administration understands this and will work with us and SUNY to get the funding the hospitals need. All right, we'll see how it shakes out in the state budget next year. But for now, thank you so much, Fred. Fred Kowal from United University Professions, thank you so much for being here. Thanks very much, Dan. We'll get a better look at next year's state budget in January when Governor Hochul gives her first budget address. But until then, thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well.